This is Ye Old Dragons Library, the storytelling podcast. Here in Season 3, we're featuring the steampunk series, Guardians of the Time Stream. This is a chapter from the prequel story, Odessa Fremont. Ready for fun with fantastical fiction? Then let's begin. Chapter 21 Every three months, S. stopped somewhere long enough to contact the Pinkerton office in Philadelphia and have a report sent to her. There were a few possible sightings of her brother, but the young man who answered to the description didn't use the name Ulysses Fremont, and he was always gone from the place months before the investigator came with his or her questions. That winter, she went to Lexington and spent the long, cold months from Thanksgiving until mid-February with the Bramwells. To her disappointment, her corset finally shredded. S. had to concede that her maturing shape didn't fit into the shape-changing garment. She and Jessica had an interesting time trying to recreate the corset and ended up devising something that was simpler to get into, but not nearly as comfortable or satisfying. Whether the colonel reported on this problem to Sutter or something else was happening that S. hadn't caught on to, Sutter didn't give her quite as heavy a load of courier work when spring came. She found several days of leisure between each delivery, when she would go to a boarding house or even find a place to sleep in the building owned by the Secret Service and wait until a new assignment came in. She wondered if Sutter would try to give her a sedentary job somewhere, or perhaps she should take preemptive action and hand in her unofficial resignation for her unofficial position with the Secret Service. At the end of May, Sutter sent a message with the man who took delivery from her of a thick bag full of reports from ten field offices, a tricky operation involving tracking a gang of train robbers, known as the Blue-Eyed Gang, was taking up all his time. Offices in the surrounding states were involved. He wanted her to find a place to settle down, take some time off, and lay low. She was to contact him in one month, let him know where she was, and hopefully by then he would have a new assignment for her. The message came with a wad of bills, a new costume, and a new identification pendant. S. shivered when she saw it, because she could only think of one reason for changing the badge that identified her as a courier to the directors of the offices. The enemy had infiltrated deeply enough to understand the code and to even know of her existence. Her new costume was a boy's set of much-mended but clean and neat clothes, rather than the cavalry cast-offs that suited her lifestyle on horseback, and a carpet bag to carry her possessions. Since no one would believe a boy dressed in faded, mended clothes would be riding such a fine-blooded horse, S. had to leave her mount with the office. Anyone seeing her riding that horse would immediately accuse her of stealing it. Again, S. shuddered, wondering if Sutter was depriving her of the horse to make her harder to find. What if the agent was lying to her, and there was no gang of train robbers to chase, he was only doing this to protect her life? Even worse, the situation was so precarious, he couldn't even trust her to defend herself? S. sent for the next report from the Pinkertons before she moved on. A telegram came back within the hour. Detective Winslow was away on assignment, and no progress had been made on her case. Did she want him to contact her when he returned, or wait until the next regularly scheduled check-in? Feeling disgusted with the world in general, 
S. responded that she would contact them in three months. She left town two hours later, in her new disguise, riding in the baggage car of a train. Taking the risk of being caught or getting hurt jumping onto the train at dusk suited her mood and the disguise. She would ride the baggage car until either she got caught and thrown off the train or she ran out of food. Then she would get off in the next town and find work. Boys with nothing to do somehow attracted much more attention than boys who were gainfully employed. She wanted to be invisible, as much as that was possible. With three weeks until her 17th birthday, S. got off the train in Watertown. She didn't like the looks of the people who lounged around the train station. Some of them had small wheeled carts, and she imagined they were gainfully employed, or tried to at least appear that way, hauling people's luggage to hotels or elsewhere. No one approached her, though a few of them eyed her and her thick, battered carpet bag. She knew better than to stare back or to hurry away. Sutter had taught her that those who were the least trustworthy always suspected everyone else of evil intentions. If she acted like she had nothing to fear, those who were looking for victims would assume that meant she was armed, which she was. But only a fool would advertise the presence of the Derringer. Still, there was nothing wrong with stacking the odds in her favor. When she saw a bulletin board loaded with posters, advertising hotels and saloons and other entertainment and hospitality venues in Watertown, S. picked the name of a hotel that struck her as respectable, more than ostentatious. She walked up to the ticketing booth and asked for directions to the hotel, adding that her father was waiting for her there. From the corner of her eye, she noticed two people look away, immediately losing interest in her. So, that was the size of things, was it? Should she keep moving, or find a place to settle in and make herself one of the locals, and vanish that way? It would be nice to stay someplace more than three nights in a row. Life on the road wasn't everything she had imagined. What was wrong with her big brother that he still hadn't come home yet? Despite his wanderlust and eagerness for adventure, S. couldn't imagine Yuli enjoying a rootless existence. Where was he, and why wasn't he home yet? Had he found a place to put down roots, or was he wandering around looking for her? She found some amusement, slightly tinged with bitterness, at the thought that she and Yuli had been passing each other roving up and down the countryside. That settles it, she mused aloud, as she strolled down the sidewalk made of boards, raised a good six inches above the packed dirt street. Time for one of us to sit still and hope the other passes by, just for a little while. She took it as a sign that no one chased her way the moment she stepped through the gates into the stable yard behind the hotel. S. focused on a big, graying man sitting on the back porch, watching boys currying horses and shining carriages and a couple steam-powered carriages, and approached him to ask about a job in the stables. When he didn't chase her away immediately, but leaned back and looked her up and down a couple times, S. took that as a sign that she had made the right decision. By nightfall, she had a bed in the loft over the parking spot for long-term guests' carriages, breakfast and dinner, and steady work pumping water for the stable, kitchen, and the vast reservoirs of hot water to service the hotel guests. The well that had seemed to promise an unlimited supply of water when the hotel was built eight years ago had run out. Management didn't want the added expense of moving the great steam-powered pump to the new well that had been sunk a good 50 feet further back on the hotel property, just in case that well gave out as well. 
S joined a relay team of five boys, she was the tallest, who worked the treadmill that pumped water up out of the well to fill a hundred-gallon tank. When the water settled, the boys filled buckets from a spigot on one side and hauled the buckets to the larger tank inside the hotel basement, where the central pump sent it to the water heater and threw out the newfangled sanitary sewage system. During her first afternoon of work, S. thought of Gus and imagined four different ways the inventor-engineer would have dreamed up a simple piping system to get the water from the well tank to the hotel's reservoir. She knew better than to say anything to anyone about it. Why deprive herself and her new co-workers of necessary income? The other five boys weren't talkative, but they seemed friendly enough. She speculated that they were glad to have a sixth member of the team, just to take the pressure off of them. Oswald, the man who hired her and was in charge of the stables and the maintenance team, informed her that the time of greatest pressure for water was first thing in the morning, when the guests awoke and wanted hot water to start their day. Then, in early afternoon, when the hotel did the laundry. Then late afternoon, when guests were washing up for an evening out on the town and indulged in hot baths. During her first afternoon of work, S. observed enough to understand the hierarchy among those who worked below stairs, as Hilda would say, the maintenance and service people who never had actual contact with the hotel guests. She marked two young men who thought they were not only important, but going places. By the mutters among her fellows on the water relay team, the two, named Buckman and Scopes, had just recently graduated from their ranks and considered themselves authorities, meaning they had the right and the duty to harass the younger boys whenever possible. S. set herself to watch them. Before she finished her duty shift and Oswald dismissed the team to get some dinner, S. had seen a great deal. What amazed her was that no one else saw what she did. Either that or no one cared that Buckman and Scopes had made a ladder out of the fancy facade of the hotel where slabs of stone stuck out at regular intervals and using that ladder climbed up to the windows of rooms and let themselves in. S. saw them quite clearly from her position on the treadmill. She watched them and timed them as they climbed to a room on the third floor, then visited a room on the fourth floor, spending at least 15-20 minutes in each room. With all the air traffic nowadays from airships and buildings climbing as high as 15 stories in some cities, S. expected more people to look up on a regular basis. Maybe no one behind the hotel thought it worthwhile to look upward? Then she considered the boys working with her, and how they looked away and hunched their shoulders or bowed their heads when the older boys came by. Were they afraid of Buckman and Scopes? The two burglars, what other reason would they have for climbing into guest rooms, reached the ground again just as S. and the other boys were leaving the treadmill. She walked slowly, staying behind her co-workers, and watched the two as they huddled together in a shadowy corner off the back porch, showing each other what they had in their pockets. Definitely thievery. If Agent Sutter were here, she would go to him and tell him what she saw, and he would do something. He wouldn't doubt her for a minute. Unfortunately, Sutter wasn't here, and he would be irritated if she wasted the cost of a telegram to send for him. He would tell her to go to the sheriff about the thieves. S. knew, as a newcomer, the sheriff wasn't likely to believe her. The word of a newcomer against young men who were known? Hardly. There's no excuse for not helping when you have the means and the ability, Granny Matilda would have said right about then. Then she would shake her head, roll up her sleeves, 
and stomp across the yard to confront the two thieves. An elderly woman in a righteous fury could accomplish miracles. However, S. was just a young, seemingly homeless boy. No one would listen to her. While she knew some tricks of self-defense, it wasn't wise to deliberately put herself into situations where she needed to use those skills. What could she do to make sure those two thieves didn't get away with their loot? Take it back, her brother said in her mind, with a ghostly whisper of laughter. Why not? The Countess had taught her to be an admirable pickpocket. S. had the plan in her head, nebulous and half-formed, even as she went down on one knee and pretended to tie her bootlaces, right in the path of the two thieves, who were still examining their loot and not watching where they were going. One stepped on her foot, while the other nearly gave her a black eye with his knee. They went down and she rolled, deliberately tangling her legs up with theirs. They cursed and thrashed and took swings at her. S. added to the noise, wailing and flailing with her arms and pulling herself upright by hanging on their clothes. That just threw Buckman and Scopes off balance, so they never noticed her hands in their coat pockets. They cursed louder, and louder still when Oswald's loud, rumbling laughter flowed across the open yard. Buckman, the bigger of the two, clenched his fist and swung down, aiming for S.'s face. She howled louder and threw herself away from him, turning a backward somersault. Oswald grabbed Buckman's wrist. He added to the shouting with some curses of his own and twisted the captive completely off his feet. Scopes shut his mouth and ran. Oswald flung his partner after him. S. stayed where she had fallen on the ground, cautiously tucking the items she had pilfered into her pockets. Her actions were hidden by her curled-up body. "'Y'all right, lad?' Oswald said, bending down to grab hold of S. by her shoulders and haul her to her feet with one swift tug upward. "'Fine.' She wrinkled up her nose and tugged her clothes straight. "'Bullies like them, all they care about is making someone yell. So I yelled like they broke me worse than a china teapot.' She grinned cheekily, earning a bark of laughter and a gentle cuff against the back of her head from Oswald. The big man warned her to stay away from those bullies, then strolled up onto the hotel porch and inside. S. waited until she was alone in the yard. Then she copied the thieves' route up the uneven slabs of stone decorating the hotel wall. When she reached the first room, she could see its single occupant was a man. She left a pipe, carved from what looked like ivory, and a gold pocket watch on the trunk at the foot of the bed. In minutes, she was in the room above the first. This was visibly occupied by a woman. The other items she had liberated from the two thieves were garnet earrings, a matching pendant, and a small handheld mirror. Why the two bullies wanted the mirror, she couldn't guess, unless one of them had a sweetheart he wanted to give it to. He left those items on the dressing table and got out of the hotel room as quickly as she could. Her mistake was pausing in the hotel yard to look up at the rooms she had just visited and admire her handiwork. "'Ain't she something?' Oswald startled S., appearing seemingly out of nowhere as she stood in the yard, looking up at the hotel. "'Something, all right.' She bit her tongue against the stupidity and arrogance of the architects and builders, who gave thieves an easy stairway to help them break into rooms. Then again, there was something wrong with a hotel that didn't put locks on the windows. "'We're the tallest building in town, but I don't doubt that won't last long. Eight stories.' Had to go all the way to New York to find an elevator that'd go that high. Some folks were worried the engine to lift people so high would be noisy as all get out. Not at all. 
other folks were afraid we'd scare customers away and give them nosebleeds from going up so high. He clapped her on the shoulder. You did good work today, Josh, my lad. Keep it up. You'll have a place here as long as you want. Thank you, sir. Ah, now, no sir here. I'm just Oswald. You better get on into the kitchen before the other boys eat up all the dinner. Gave her a friendly shove between her shoulder blades. S hesitated, then caught movement from the corner of her eye and saw the two bullies stomping back down the long driveway from the side street entrance. They were glaring at each other, in between studying the ground in front of them. Did those two buffoons honestly think they had dropped all their loot? She scurried to get up onto the porch before they saw her and remembered they had tripped over her. Just because they hadn't noticed her picking their pockets less than half an hour ago, that didn't mean they wouldn't remember now when they saw her again. She heard a baritone chuckle from the guest side of the building as she went through the kitchen door. Then a shout of anger followed from the yard. Passing by the kitchen window, she saw Scopes take a punch at his partner. She grinned as the big, red-faced chief cook ordered her to wash up right quick and scampered over to the massive sink. The other boys were already sitting on the long benches on either side of the trestle table, where the staff ate their meals. Oswald and two older men took care of the stables and cleaned and made repairs to the various wagons and carriages and steam carriages of hotel guests. They were still talking about the fight those two young idiots had in the yard when S and the boys came outside and went back to work to fill the tanks for that evening's bathing needs. Common sense said until the two bullies were fired for fighting, or they were caught thieving, they would keep robbing hotel guests. S set herself to stay vigilant. If she could frustrate their efforts, she would be making her grandparents proud and keep sharp the skills the Countess had taught her. She might even have some interesting stories to tell Agent Sutter when next she saw him. At the very least, she might make him laugh. We've come to a break in the story. I'd like to take a moment to tell you about a book that you might be interested in reading. Are you looking for epic fantasy and adventure with a touch of romance? Visit the land of Reshore and the Faxanor family. With prophecy and political intrigue, warfare and magic swords, visions and daring adventures in foreign lands, their lives are tightly interwoven with the fate of their kingdom and their world. Titles include... Heir of Faxenor, Lorien, Traitors, and Sword of Faxenor. There are seven Faxenor children, each with their own adventure and destiny, so more books are waiting to be written. Learn more about the Faxenor family. Stories written by Michelle Levine, published by Writers Exchange, mlevine.com, and writers-exchange.com. And now, back to the story. Buckman and Scopes tried again the very next afternoon. The lull when guests were elsewhere in town or relaxing in the hotel parlor or music room and weren't in need of transportation yet was the best time to work relatively unseen in the yard. Hotel employees were for the most part busy with their various duties. S. watched the two thieves climb up to rooms on the fourth and fifth floors this time. She stretched a thin cord between the decorative shrubs around the foundation of the hotel and neatly tripped the two would-be thieves as they hurried to get away from the building. They were so flustered by the laughter of the other water boys, and then so angry, busy making threats, 
They didn't seem to notice when S slid up behind them from the shadows and neatly picked their pockets. She considered them not only oblivious idiots, but dangerously stubborn, dangerous for their own welfare mostly, when she found the same garnet jewelry and mirror in Scope's pockets, and a sealed pack of playing cards, a silver cigar case, and a small bag of silver coins in Buckman's. This time, the trip up the hotel wall was even faster, because she knew her way and she didn't have to take clues from guests' belongings to know what stolen possessions belonged where. Buckman and Scopes took a break from their thieving for two days. S knew better than to hope they had given up out of frustration. However, she did find some amusement in overhearing them arguing with each other over who had dropped their loot. She curled up in her cozy hole in the stable loft and listened to the thieves argue in the main aisle below her. Part of the argument was covered by the other water team boys whispering and laughing among themselves. After the second night of arguing, the two thieves inched toward accusing each other of cheating. They didn't say it outright, but they came close to supposing, as her grandfather called it. How soon, until some common sense blew in through the gaping holes in their brains, and they decided someone else was to blame? Maybe she needed to pick up and leave Watertown, and find some other comfortable place to wait until Sutter gave her new work. Maybe she should just forget about her connections with the Secret Service and focus on finding her brother? Maybe she should take the chance the press had blown the turmoil in South America out of proportion and hop the next steamship heading south? By this time, she knew better than to ignore the gut warnings, the certainty that trouble approached. Added to the nastiness of the arguing thieves, S. had the growing sensation of being watched as she went about her duties. Maybe she should quit and go two towns further down the train line? The next day, when she caught the two thieves climbing over the windowsill of a room on the second floor, she limited herself to running into them with two buckets of water, picking their pockets, and tossing the confiscated loot onto a luggage cart by the front desk. The fuss raised by the discovery of the stolen items was quite entertaining. S. waited in shivering anticipation for the fight that would break out between the two partners after she and the water team had gone to their beds in the hayloft. Nothing happened. The two older boys never came to their abandoned stall beds. She wondered if perhaps they had argued somewhere else, maybe even got into a fist fight and made such a ruckus they got caught. Maybe they even accused each other so much the sheriff had enough evidence to arrest them? The next day, however, Buckman and Scopes were back in their usual spots in the yard behind the hotel, sulkily running errands, spying on guests, and trying to avoid work as usual. That evening, they returned to the stables, but they weren't arguing. Their chortles of glee as they made their plans chilled S. An elderly, wealthy woman had come into the hotel that afternoon, dripping with jewels, in the words of Buckman. S. could almost hear the drool spilling from his mouth in anticipation. The manager, Mr. Mortimer, danced attendance on her with twice the nervous obsequiousness he gave to other wealthy guests. S. had noticed that, but she had also noticed the way the elderly lady smiled at him and patted his hand. She heard the manager slip up and call her Auntie Gertrude, and saw how he blushed dark. The two thieves plotting and whispering and snorting underneath her sleeping spot had also caught on to that relationship. It seemed to give them even more reason to plot the heist of the century, in their own words, to rob the old woman. They despised Mr. Mortimer because he didn't put up with their protests that their assigned chores were either too hard 
or they were too old for such baby jobs. S. agreed with Mr. Mortimer's response when he asked them to make up their minds. Was the job too hard, or was it for babies? S. kept watch on Buckman and Scopes all the next day, so much that Oswald scolded her twice for having her head in the clouds. The two would-be thieves loitered too long and too often in the backyard of the hotel, and they studied the sixth-floor room so steadily S. wondered that no one else got suspicious. Yet they never made a move. Had they grown some common sense at long last? Maybe elderly Mrs. Sinclair's wealth intimidated them. Or had they finally learned some caution since their last failed attempt at theft? She almost didn't go to dinner, afraid the two older boys would make their move while her back was turned. However, when S. came outside again, after a dinner of very good roast beef and noodles, they were still at their posts in the shadows of the stable, watching the side window of the suite that was their target. We're already at the end of today's chapter. I hope you enjoyed yourself and you're eagerly looking forward to the next episode of Ye Old Dragons Library. <laughs>